What a difference a week makes, right? Does everyone remember how our cars looked after service last Sunday? But it's true, we do find ourselves at the beginning of another spring, having survived yet another winter and endured yet another seasonal transition, tough though it was. It is, of course, Easter today, recognized by billions of Christians around the world as the anniversary of the resurrection in which Jesus is said to have risen, body and all, from the tomb in which he was placed after his execution at the hands of the Romans nearly 2,000 years ago. And it is true that Jesus was executed, as far as we can tell from the historical record, at this time of year, coinciding with the Jewish Passover celebration. Passover is, of course, a much older tradition that commemorates the final of the mythical plagues that God placed upon the Egyptians that ultimately led to the freedom of the Israelites and the true beginning of the Hebrew people. And unlike the Christian holiday of Christmas, which celebrates the birth of Jesus, conveniently coinciding with the winter solstice, for which there is no evidence in the historical record, the actual time of Easter is pretty well established. After all, the Last Supper that takes place the day before Jesus' arrest is a Passover Seder. And the entirety of Jesus' ministry spans just, just three years, framed by four Passovers, as recorded in the New Testament. But from the point of the trial on, the story gets a little muddled, or at best, a little confused. We know that there are several accounts of the end of Jesus' life, a few of which are included in the book we know as the New Testament, a few of which are not included, and a few which probably no longer exist in any form. The oldest account in the New Testament is the Gospel according to Mark, written about 40 years after Jesus died. Say that again. The earliest written account we have about Jesus was written 40 years after he lived and died. Mark, this oldest gospel, includes nothing about Jesus after the tomb is discovered empty. Accounts of disciples seeing Jesus after his death don't appear until gospels, which are written much later. The basis of modern Christology, which claims Jesus is co-eternal with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, cannot actually be traced to any New Testament writings as we know them, and are actually the result of hundreds of years of other Christian uh, efforts and scholarship, and ultimately a political evolution of the faith as it progressed from the back rooms and secret meetings of the first century to very quickly becoming the state-sanctioned religion of the Roman Empire by the middle of the fourth century. So, as Unitarian Universalists and as rationalists, I guess, have throughout the centuries, on Easter it's always nice to take a look at the story for metaphor and symbolism, but first, just at face value. 
Take away the miracles. Take away the leaps of faith and see what the story is about on its own merit. And I find, as others have found before me, that the story on its own speaks to a deep truth that is not necessarily enhanced or strengthened by the addition of the miracle of the literal resurrection. The story is a simple one. An ordinary man of lowly birth would rise to such a level of political and spiritual influence as to threaten not only the oldest practiced religion in his land, but the most powerful empire the world had yet known. He would be tried and executed for his beliefs, and those whom he taught would keep his message and story alive for the next two thousand years and counting. It is true that Jesus attained the immortality of influence, even if you don't believe in the literal resurrection or even life after death. But perhaps more importantly, no one really knows who Jesus actually was. There are very few facts upon which to draw conclusions, and our most detailed accounts, which we find in the Gospels and the New Testament, are also the most suspect when it comes to historical accuracy. And the Gospels were written with an agenda. They wanted to tell the story of Jesus as they knew it. In fact, it's pretty clear that both the original authors and the original audience of the Gospels had a very different idea about history than we do. Namely, that story and metaphor were used to communicate truths rather than recount specific historical events in chronological order. So, for example, everyone living in first century Judea would have known that the census that appears in the Gospel of Luke that places Jesus' birth in Bethlehem never actually happened. The Romans did not call for censuses of non-citizens and never would have required day laborers to leave their jobs building roads and palaces for the Romans themselves in order to register with the state. Now, the original audience those living in the first century Israel knew that this census never happened. But they accepted the story because if, if Jesus were the Messiah, as foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures, he must have been born in Bethlehem, as predicted. So they accepted this truth despite knowing that the facts were wrong. So again, no one really knows who Jesus was, but we know a couple things. We can guess at a couple more. More than likely, Jesus was a laborer. A carpenter, or maybe actually more likely a stonemason, who was born in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. He probably had laboring parents and was raised in an illiterate Hebrew household with only loose ties to the temple hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. Several scholars have recently come out as describing Jesus as illiterate, the great contemporary religious scholar Reza Aslan among them. But I kind of disagree with this assessment. 
While it's unlikely that Jesus had access to tutors or much formal education at all, the command he seems to have over the content and, more importantly, the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures requires on some level that he's read them. Now, I imagine he was mostly self-taught or perhaps caught the attention of a priest or rabbi early in his life who took the precocious young Jesus under his wing. For a, long, for a young Judean from an impoverished family, there were really only a couple ways of gaining social status. One would have been to become a soldier. The other, to become a priest. Now, I would bet that Jesus chose the latter path, and perhaps, again, with a mentor or someone who recognized his talent and, and passion early on. Now, it's been a long-held Christian, Christian tradition that Jesus himself was not only single, but celibate. And while it was indeed possible for a man to live into his 30s unmarried in first century Judea, it was rare and extremely unlikely in the case of Jesus. If he were considered a rabbi, a teacher, someone of religious authority, and by all accounts, he was. It would have been almost scandalous for him not to have been married. Now, there's nothing said about his wife in the Gospels included in the New Testament. And some scholars would say that this omission is almost as confirming as if Jesus' wife had been named. The fact that the question of his marital state is completely absent in the New Testament accounts means that there was nothing out of the ordinary about his lifestyle. Otherwise, it would have most certainly been mentioned. Again, many scholars take this omission to all but confirm that Jesus was married, had a family, and had been married for many years before the story of his ministry begins. Again, just three years prior to his trial and eventual execution. And there's at least one other glaring omission, something that's left out in the Gospels pertaining to Jesus. Anyone want to guess what that is? Children are left out, that's, that's for sure. But what did Jesus look like? Anybody know? I'm sure we have lots of ideas and images. Yes, well, yes, he was blue-eyed. He looked a lot like me, actually. <laughs> With a longer beard, perhaps. There are no, no, zero physical descriptions of Jesus anywhere in the New Testament and in any of the early Christian writings that survived. Zero. None. No indications of how he looked, how far his voice carried, whether or not he walked with a limp, or had strong arms or clear eyes. Now this is in stark contrast to the descriptive language throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and actually some of the New Testament itself. We know that King David was short, we know that his predecessor Saul was a head taller than the tallest soldier. We know that Esau's hands were rough and his younger brother uh, Jacob's voice was soft and feminine. 
We know that Samson's hair was not only the source of his strength, but long and curly and beautiful. We know that Abraham's wife Sarah was so exceedingly striking that he feared for their lives when wandering in foreign lands. But again, no such descriptions exist, or at least remain, about Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth. Now, I take this to mean, just like the omission of describing his wife, that there was nothing extraordinary about Jesus, at least physically. He was neither tall nor short, thin nor fat, had no unique physical qualities that set him apart. An ordinary man with an extraordinary message and influence. Now, he was pretty clearly a radical opponent of both the Roman occupation of Israel and the corruption of the temple priests into the commercialization of his faith. He clearly abhorred the Roman-sponsored practice that sold year-long appointments as temple high priest to the highest bidder. The excessive markup the temple charged for the animals people would be required to purchase for sacrifice year-round, but especially at Passover. And the mercantile exchanges set up within the walls of the temple itself. The money changers, right? It would be these three corruptions against which he would rage in the famous account of turning over the tables of the moneylenders and tax collectors on what would be his last trip to the temple at Jerusalem. Now, he was radical and outspoken, but he also had at least a little bit of political guile in his methods. As uh, Reza Aslan points out, Dr. Aslan, in his book Zealot, which is about the historical Jesus, Jesus avoids falling into a political trap when asked about taxation. There's a group of radicals with many of the same views on the Romans and temple as Jesus shared. And they'd come to the forefront of the Jerusalem political scene over the several decades leading up to Jesus' ministry. They were called the Zealots. And the Zealots would claim that any tax paid to the emperor of Rome was blasphemy, as a citizen's only tie that should be to the temple itself. Now, as you might imagine, such a claim was dangerous to make in first century Israel or anywhere else the Romans were in control, which was much of Western civilization at the time. When questioned directly about his opinion on taxation, he first asks, whose picture is on the coin? Right? You remember what he says after that? That's it. They said, Caesar's face is on the coin, and he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. And this is incredibly significant, in that it both separates Jesus from the extreme zealots, or at least officially separates him, who had become to lose favor with the local Jewish population. And by saying this, Jesus avoids immediate arrest and persecution from the Romans. He says... Give the coins to, to Caesar. They're his coins. But the subtle subtext of this actually betrays his uh, zealous views. 
Because what he's really saying, or at least what many scholars believe he's saying, is he's saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give back his money and his soldiers and his occupiers. Send them back to Rome and return Israel to God. Give back to God what is God's. So, it's pretty, pretty smart here because he's saying, he's telling the, the legal line, but he's also making a pretty explicit dig at the Roman occupiers and their Jewish collaborators. And amazingly, this is pretty much all we know about Jesus the person. A little more than a page or so worth of text on what is clearly the most influential life in Western history. So the question for us, Unitarian Universalists, on Easter Sunday, why do we care? What is it about this story and this faith that is so compelling even two millennia after it happened? Well, the first, first reason we care as Unitarian Universalists, as people in general, is the promise and proof of immortality. The promise and proof of immortality. Now, as I've said, it's unnecessary to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus' body from the tomb to understand the reality of his endurance as a figure of faith and culture. In his life and in his death, Jesus' teaching would mark a distinct departure from the Jewish faith of his ancestors or really any other religion in the world at the time. It would be a teaching of resistance to oppression and standing up for the disenfranchised in a way that was really new to the Western consciousness. And this message in one form or another has survived 2,000 of the most turbulent years in human history. And there is nothing to indicate that it is going away anytime soon. In Easter, we are reminded that we all have the potential to live forever. If only in the hearts and minds of those who loved us, and that the good we do in this lifetime may continue long after we ourselves are gone. At Easter time, the resurrection is all around us. The springtime reminds us of the tenacity and resilience of life despite death. Just last Sunday, the ground was covered in an impossibly deep and cold blanket of wet snow. And yet this week, the daffodils and tulips are in full bloom, grass turning from scorched to brown to the emerald green of spring. The resurrection is here in the whistles of songbirds now returned or simply woken out of a winter's silence. The freshly hatched ducklings waddling after their mother to the local pond or stream. The resurrection, the reminder of the cosmic promise of life despite death, is all around us this time of year. One only needs stop and take notice. And finally, Easter inspires us to continue to seek harmony in ourselves and the world and to recognize we're not 
there yet. We know that we may not make it there. But just like Moses stood on the mountainside and gazed towards the Israel he would never live to see, just like Dr. King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial amid a sea of people who, like him, would not live long enough to experience racial equity in this country, just like Jesus himself knew that his work would need continue without him, none of us is likely to see true justice in our lifetimes. We're not there, but we have seen the cumulative effect of history. We have seen that the work of justice is not completed in a lifetime, but we know we have many lifetimes to contribute. I am reminded by the huge age differences here in this sanctuary every Sunday in that wonderful, beautiful fact that our lifetimes, thankfully, overlap. Many of those who marched in Selma and were on the mall and sat in at lunch counters are still among us, and many of those who will take our vision forward are already here. This is the inspiration that we might take from Easter and its message of resurrection, that as long as we continue to strive, history will continue to strive with us. And working together over the generations, we might continue to actively bend that arc of the moral universe towards justice and towards love. If the story of an ordinary man with extraordinary ideas who lived 2,000 years ago can continue to inspire that work, our work, we may all have cause for hope that through all our effort, the world may just be a little better for having us here. Happy Easter, everyone. Blessed be and amen.